Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of my episode with the brilliant Hashi Mohammed, a BBC broadcaster, one of the UK's leading barristers and author on social mobility in Britain. His book is out now, it's called People Like Us and I absolutely loved this conversation and loved his book. He has so many stories to tell and so much wisdom to share. His story is such an interesting one. He came to the UK as an unaccompanied child refugee from Kenya in the summer of 1993 when he was just nine years old, being one of 12 children. Fast forward to today, he's a published author and speaker. He attended Oxford University and he's just such an incredibly inspiring, incredible person who inspires so many of us with his story of hope, ambition, success, resilience, adaptability, and also tells us and shows us the realities and the truths of this society that we all live in. So I'm really excited to reshare this episode with you. And if you enjoyed it, I'd love it if you shared it with a friend or left a review and also buy a copy of Hashi's book because it's just so brilliant. So here is the episode and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Hashi, someone I met at Cheltenham Festival in person, which felt really special. So I read your book, People Like Us. I was just so excited to learn about you and your life. And it's amazing, which you know, a lot of people have already said that to you, but I just can't believe how much I highlighted, how many sticky notes I put in it. It's (laughs) a really special book. So I just wanted to ask you, I know that this is obviously a book you were always going to write, but Am I right in saying that it sort of came off the back of a documentary, Radio 4 documentary you did that kind of was a bit word of mouth crazy? Yeah, so it came about um, as a result of the documentary I made for the BBC in April 2017. Um, Seems like a lifetime ago now. And it was a documentary called Adventures in Social Mobility. And the whole point about that documentary, the premise of that documentary was simply that there is so much about what it means to make it and how things work in society and the kind of unwritten rules that we don't necessarily understand because of how our society is structured. I feel as though this is something that I have learnt along the way that I need to impart to people. And that documentary really hit a nerve and a lot of people watched it and it made a massive impact. And off the back of that, I was approached by a number of publishers who who were inviting me to to write a book. Yeah. And I I guess I wanted to touch on early on so that the listeners can kind of understand, you know, where the story begins and where you are now in your life. Yeah. You, You write so movingly about growing up and when you were nine years old, that's when you boarded a plane from Somalia to England. And I just had a moment reading that, kind of wanting to just acknowledge like how young that is. And I know you're expecting your first child. Is yeah, it? But yeah. I just wondered, was that quite hard to, not hard to write, but just did you have that reflection as an adult where you were like, oh my God, that is so young. It's, a, it's, it's really surreal because, you know, as a nine-year-old coming to this country, having just buried my father, who had died in a car crash, without my mum, in a completely alien world, not understanding anything about the culture, not understanding the language, not understanding any of that. I mean, I'm just slowly 
choking right now when I think about it, even to this day, really. And it, it, it is, it's very hard to explain to people in words that do justice to that. Um, but the truth is when you're a child and you're at that stage, actually it's very hard for you to fathom what's going on. But at the same time, children at that age, I really think are hugely resilient. And I think they are made of really tough stuff that allows them to be able to cope with whatever situation they are facing at that stage, provided obviously that it isn't so traumatic that it leaves a huge um, scar in your membranes and, and, and ability to, to think about things in the future. But, but actually also what was fascinating about that was how as an adult writing this book, as an adult reflecting back on all of this, I looked back and I thought, my God, it was mad. It was absolutely mad to think that I came here as a nine-year-old boy without any of this. But actually back then, there was no way of really computing that because it was, as I say in the book as well, you know, it was remarkably unremarkable because when you think about my siblings who are much younger than me, when you think about other Somalis who came as refugees, when you think about everyone else who's had that journey, actually as a nine-year-old, you're a bit older, you might be a little bit wiser compared to those younger people. And so it's about sort of seeing things in their own light, in their own context, and, and, and sort of appreciating the good parts while trying to jettison the bad stuff. Yeah, I also found the the way you reflected kind of from your adult self back on those moments. So it's it's so eye-opening when you were talking as well about when you were 18. So that's like another nine years on. You're still going through your, you were made homeless that, that year. You, you were helping people even at the time. You probably didn't know that was going to be something that would stay with you and maybe even be part of your job. Would you be able to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I explain how um, for a year I was homeless once I became eligible to pay council tax as somebody who wasn't full time in full-time education. And there was a bit of conflict in the family, which meant that I was out on the streets trying to sort of forge my own future. And I ended up at Centerpoint in Soho, where there was a sort of system by which you effectively had to make a case for yourself to be housed in these hostels. But, but each hostel had a specific period of time that you could stay in. The first one would say, for example, you, you've got nine days to find your next place, which is going to be, you know, for four weeks and then the next one for, for six months and then the following one for a year. And every day they sort of put these, not necessarily barriers, but, but hurdles for young people to kind of make them find new places for themselves because then at least they they will have that capacity to appreciate it and then and and I I talk about in the book how you know I basically was calling on behalf of other people after I found myself somewhere I was advocating for others calling on behalf of others and 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 sort of making a difference in in the lives of so many young people without necessarily understanding how or why and um and again you know as I say I didn't know what a barrister did, let alone how to be one back then. 
But what I did know was that, you know, I had that ability to to convince, to explain, to articulate, to uh, make a difference in how somebody might see themselves or the purpose of what they're pursuing and so on and so forth. So in that sense, that's what that period of time was about, that even though I was in a difficult set of circumstances because of where I was, um, it was also possible for me to make a difference in the lives of other people uh, by by doing what I could for them. Mm. It's, it's quite amazing, isn't it, how many clues are in childhood when you look back because you know we are we're ourselves from such an early age but you kind of you don't realize it's all making sense at the time it's a really good point because we look back and the clues are all there but when you're in it you don't really know it right when you're in it you don't really appreciate it when you're in it you don't fully engage with it and that's one of the things you mentioned earlier you know i'm going to have my son in in, in a month and a half now and I, 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 I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about when is he going to be showing me signs of who he is? Because that's the other thing about ch- children. You know, a lot of people think that you can make your child what you want them to be when they grow up, when actually some of the books that I've been reading explain how you are actually getting to know somebody. <laughs> you know, you're actually wow. getting to know this human being as they grow older, they come with their own personality, they come with their own. Now you might sort of encourage them and and cajole them to learn about new things and face a particular direction or, or, or pursue a particular thing. And, but actually none of that is possible if you don't actually get to know them and who they are and what their personalities are and what their quirks are. And, and I, and I look at, if you look at the cover of my book, the paperback, you know, that's me as a seven-year-old boy standing in an ill-fitted suit in pretty much exactly the same way I stand to this day, you know, <laughs> <laughs> almost 30 years later. So, so the clues are there. And, and, and so how do we nurture those at a very early age is, is, is also part of the book's analysis. Yes, I love that. And another thing I really loved about the way you wrote the book is it's just so incredibly self-aware with you kind of reminding the reader that this isn't like a copy and paste success story. We are all individual. And I think you say in the book, if you succeeded against the odds, please let go of the idea others can do the same. I, I love that, that you made that point. I mean, that kind of ladders back, doesn't it, to the point that we are all we are all our own person at the end of the day as well. We can't just follow someone else exactly how they did things. Absolutely. And I think that's perhaps one of the most sort of really damaging notions that we have in society. Because what what it does is it basically says to people, look, there is only one way of succeeding. There is only one way of doing certain things. And so if somebody has actually achieved it, it must follow that other people can too. And it must follow that other people who don't necessarily achieve that, they must be either doing something wrong, they must be either lazy or not focused enough. And so it kind of sets up a a society in which people, I think, are being set up to fail People are being given wrong assumptions and wrong ideas about what it means to succeed. And then 
stories like mine or other self-made stories, other success stories are then effectively used by the minority of people who've succeeded based on the parameters that we live in in society today to beat those people over the heads. Now, when you think about today, we pay an extortionate amount of money to footballers, basketball players, Formula One drivers, you know, very senior banking executives, very, you know, rich lawyers, etc. But if we if we were living in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, none of these jobs would be getting remunerated in the way that they are remunerated today. So actually, if you are in those kind of places now where you enjoy those kind of successes, it's only by an accident of history and an accident of birth that you happen to have a particular talent that is particularly well remunerated in the particular time that you're living in today. And so some humility is overdue for those people to understand that that is the reason why they are benefiting from what they are benefiting from today and that everyone else who hasn't done what they're doing is not necessarily not working hard enough or as ambitious enough or want to be successful enough. It's just a matter of circumstance and context. Yes, yes, 100%. And I, I mean, as someone who has written a very, very different book to yours, but in terms of kind of being part of an industry that could be, well, is deemed as like self-help or um, giving people quote unquote advice or whatever in the career space. I think it's just so important to, there needs to be this huge caveat on any book like that, that is this, you know, there is this roulette of luck and privilege and talent, mainly privilege. And we'll get on to some of the quotes and stats in the book, but you have to be so, so aware of that, um, that luck that is floating in the air that you can't, you almost can't pin down. Absolutely. And it's very hard to pin down that luck, um, some of which I've described already, some of which is sort of what uh, Professor, um, there's, a, there's a really great professor at uh, Cornell University called Robert Franks, who's written a book, um, uh, Luck, I think it's called Luck and the, and the, and the Myth of Meritocracy. Oh, yes. I underlined that in your book. So I would go and um, buy the book. Yeah, he's a he's a fantastic guy. I went to see him when he came to the Royal Society of the Arts. It's a really good speech he's given on YouTube um, to kind of he explains the role of luck in life. And, and, and one of the quotes he has in the book is, is, is never mention luck in the presence of self-made men. Because, you know, you have, the you know, a lot of self-made men who will ardently and vociferously say it's got nothing to do with luck this is all me classic example uh, donald, Do trump. donald trump <laughs> talking about you know uh, my father gave me a, a small loan of a million dollars you know and and you know just ridiculous ideas but the way robert franks explains is that he says look luck is a bit like when you're riding a bicycle and you're going up a hill when the wind is against you and you're working Every single bone in your body and every muscle is trying to go up this hill. Luck and understanding that you have bad luck is that kind of that it's there. Bad luck is 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 pushing you back. It's making all your muscles work. It's really really straining you. You take a left or a right, and now you're in a, an incline cycling downwards. The wind is in your back. Your muscles are not working as hard, but you are flying down that uh, path as compared to where you were just a few moments ago. 
that's an example of good luck, but you won't really notice it more than a few seconds after you've turned the corner. And you're much more likely to say and attribute that it's all you, that it's all you cycling down this hill, that it's all you doing the hard work. And so in society, we are much more likely to be fully aware of the bad luck because it's in our face, it's there, it's repetitive, and it's, it's, it's persistent. But the moment we have good luck, we are much less likely to, we're much more likely to discount it and much more likely to believe that it's down to our hard work and our determination. And I think that is also another example of a successful, a success story which is both incomplete and irresponsible. God, it's so interesting. And I, I actually, having read that section in the book, I basically wrote down all of the bits of luck I've had over my life. And it, it literally just looks like a video game of yeah. someone collecting coins because yeah. it, it is literally a case of that happened because I was in that room. Yeah. <laughs> I was in that place at the right time. And there's all, there was almost this movement against saying that you were lucky a while ago. And I just thought, well, that's really dangerous actually to, um, to say that you weren't. It, as I say, it tells a, a, an incomplete and an irresponsible story. But equally, by acknowledging that you were lucky, you do not necessarily negate the fact that you've worked hard for what you have. It doesn't cancel out that you've been determined to succeed. And it doesn't mean that you are not talented enough to do well. All that it means is that you are talented. You are incredibly determined. You are incredibly disciplined. Those are factors that, that are given and, and just clear as day. But you still need quite a bit of luck to get mm -hmm. on because luck is a big factor in then helping you get further than you might have done. Luck is a critical factor that can get you over the line when all else is pretty much equal. When you think about you know, the, my legal profession, for example, the bar, when you think about the really, really high-pressured supremely elite worlds that some jobs are, the vast majority of the candidates who apply and who get to the interview stage and who are assessed at those early stages, quite frankly, when you look at their CVs, they're pretty much neck and neck, right? They're pretty much neck and neck. And there's very little difference between them. It's quite frankly, paper thin difference between them. But the person who gets in and that person who misses out there's a huge amount of luck involved. And, and it just so happens that that particular moment, your luck was in. And then in another day, in another year, in front of a different panel, in a different economy, in a different sort of permutation, you may not have made it through that door. And that's just important to acknowledge and say, say so, you know, I think. Oh my God, totally. And the more luck you have, the more it almost multiplies. You Absolutely. become luckier and luckier, Absolutely. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but it was really, it's interesting in the book, kind of you almost reflecting on yourself and, and why you kind of have done what you've done. And it was almost that bit in the book where someone said to you something like, oh, you have it. Almost like the X factor or something, like yeah. you have something. And, and this isn't me just like, 
um you know being really sycophantic but obviously I met you and w- within five minutes I was like really drawn to you wanted to talk to you like you you do have something and that's such an interesting thing to kind of dwell on as well isn't it yeah it's 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 something to dwell upon and it's and it's also very hard to describe it's very hard to explain it's very hard to quantify it's very hard to um teach right and mm. and so how do you impart something like that without being you know essentially saying to people you are born with this or you're not and I think that what I have, what you've described and what people have described and what people see is is a basic understanding of what it means to be human. And that has taken many years for me to develop. And it's an, an understanding that we as human beings communicate in a certain way. We have various cues that are both verbal and nonverbal that help us to actually get on to engage, to interact, to really consider one another as, as human beings. And that's what I often deploy when I'm talking to them, whether it's Emma, whether it's whoever it is, I, I always, and I, and I think a lot of, some of your listeners might think this is a bit exhausting and crazy, but actually, no matter who it is, I really engage with people on a human level to really get to know them. I remember my wife was making fun of me the other day because we, we've had, we've just had a bathroom fixed by a guy who was here for a few weeks. And, you know, I really wanted to know about his family. I wanted to know about his kids. I really got to know him on those few weeks that he was working in the house because at the end of the day, he may be here to fix my bathroom, but he's also a human being who has a family to go to and bills to pay and ambitions and kids to raise and all the rest of it. And, and, and I think, he won't necessarily mind talking to you and he might want to get on with his job. But but that's where I think my thing comes from is this intense belief that each interaction that you have, if you are going to talk to somebody and they're going to talk to you should be meaningful. Now, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have an intense conversation with the lady at the post office every time I go there. But, but you know what I mean? If I'm engaging Mm -hmm. with you and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to spend more than an hour with you at any given time, I am, I am going to give you my full 110% attention. And I think that's what people are drawn to because a lot of our interactions today and a lot of our relationships are quite frankly, very superficial, you know, they're very, um, on the surface. And I think what happens is that when people come across somebody like me who goes beyond that, it is instantly meaningful and and people are drawn to it. Yes, and you really remember people like that. And in a way, it's quite sad that we do live in such a like transient communication world where you're like, wow, that person actually looked me in the eye and asked me how I was. Yeah. And it's such a, I mean, it's such a great way to live a life. You know, it's so rich in curiosity. And I love that. And, and that's why I really love the chapter on language. And for me, the overarching message of the book is the power of language, the power of talking, the power of communication. And, and in particular, I just really wanted to ask you about what you talk about to do with code switching, because 
for a lot of people, they don't have that cognitive load added onto their life. But you talk so amazingly about that, how you can and do switch between lots of different ways of communicating all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it goes back to that very simple philosophy of mine that you really have to be present in the society in which you live in. You really have to be present in everything that you do. You really have to be present in everything that you want to participate in. And at the heart of all of that, at the end of the day, beyond being physically present and getting from A to B, at the heart of all of that is your words. It's how you communicate. It's what you say to people. It's how you say it. And the impression and the feeling that you leave with people, I think, you know, the old adage says people will may not necessarily remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I always thought that that was a, 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 a kind of phrase that was half wrong and half right, because I believe that, yes, people will remember how you how you made them feel, but actually how you made them feel will largely depend on what you said to them Mm -hmm. and how you said it to them. And so I'm, you know, guilty of, of, of using that in the opposite, right? So as I explain in the book, when my mum used to struggle with her paying, uh, you know, her bills and, and we had to deal with call operators and people who are just looking at their computer, tapping on the keyboard and saying, computer says no, you know, that's another example of using the power of language and the power of communication and power of code switching, quite frankly, to be terse, to be direct, to chastise, and to get what you want. Mm-hmm. E- equally, I also know that when I go to the hospital to talk to a doctor, or if I go to somebody who I need their help and I need them to ensure that something that I need doing gets done, you're not going to take that terse attitude with them. You're not going to take that kind of chastising attitude. What you're going to do is you're going to speak to them with the kind of respect that then compels them to want to help you, compels them to want to help you achieve whatever goal that you're seeking to achieve. You're not asking for anything more than asking them to do their jobs, but actually by having that more meaningful conversation and more meaningful contact, it means that you are able to then compel them to help you perhaps a little bit more than they might do somebody else who's just been on the phone and who was either unclear about what they want or rude or unnecessarily hostile. And so for me, the power of language, the power of communication, the code switching that allows you to speak to different people based on the language formation, the context and communication skills that they have to be able to achieve your goal. And as I say in the the book, people get obsessive about the particular accent with which they speak or the particular code switching that they do And they then get bogged down about that particular issue in that particular context. What people should be doing, in my judgment, is saying, what is it that I'm trying to achieve from this particular interaction? And how do I therefore adjust my language to achieve that end? 
if I'm at a school talking to my children's parents, uh, my children's teachers or parents or, or whomever, you are going to pick the particular language that is relevant to that particular context to achieve a particular outcome. What you can't do is go into that school and communicate with the teachers the same way that you might communicate with the guy who comes over to deal with your burst water pipe in your in the back of your garden to clear out mm-hmm. your manhole. You're not going to have the same conversation. So why would you stick to the same linguistic register in those two contexts? And that's yeah. the heart of what I'm trying to tell people is is to be fully present and to be fully engaging in society requires you to be flexible and and focused on what you are seeking to achieve and then adjusting your language to suit that particular goal. I love I love that. Your book is almost like this kind of you know, come here I'm going to tell you everything I know and it's quite strategic and in in that way that you just want to give that information to people and 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 I suppose it ties in as well with the overall message as well, which is the playing field is not level. What was so interesting, uh, I mean, I literally wrote down so many statistics, but one that really stood out was that a child growing up in a really struggling household will hear 30 million less words than a child in a middle class family. You know, maybe that child isn't being read a story every night. You know, if language is the most powerful thing we have, then you know, not everyone has that. They don't begin with that. Absolutely. And the difference in the words that a child hears before they even start school is so stark between a child on welfare, a child on free school meals, a child from a middle class and upper class uh, uh, society the difference in the language that they hear at home, the books and the words that they're exposed to at that early stage, and the communication skills that they develop has such a determinative sort of, you know, outcome and trajectory that it is absolutely critical. And so exactly as you say, this is something that happens so early on And as I explain in the book, even the basic language skills are not evenly distributed in society. And so even the very tool with which you should be aiming to use to become more socially mobile, to better your opportunities, to define your own destiny, is being snuffed out of every child before they've even understood the power of what it could mean for them in the future. Yeah. And then we get to hear loads of politicians saying the word meritocracy, which they love, apparently. Like reading your book, I was like, oh my God, there's so many MPs that use that word. All the time. All the time. And 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 fundamentally at the heart of that problem is that they seem to believe that we are all going into a neutral world in which everyone has an equal starting point in which everyone is growing up in a household that will be nurturing, that they that their emotional and personal um, needs are being met, that each child is leaving home in a, with a full belly when we know from the campaign by Marcus Rashford that that's simply not true, 
that they're able to turn up at school and concentrate on their work, that they're able to then go home and have a home environment that will reflect their school environment and vice versa, and so much more besides. And so the very underlying assumptions which underpin the constant messages that we hear from politicians that we live in a meritocratic society is fundamentally flawed. So is it any wonder that everything that then flows from that is similarly tainted and not fit for purpose? Yes. And and I think it goes back to the point, I suppose, that we spoke about at the very, very top of the episode, which is that to gl- glamorize or glorify like a success story because um, a lot of it, I know that a lot of politicians do that as well to be like, look, it's possible. They kind of don't actually realize how that person has had to work, you know, 10, 20 times as hard. They skim over that bit. Absolutely. Well, they skim over that. But it, worse than that, what they do is they not only skim over that, but they also basically just tell society that this person has achieved it against the odds. And so it must follow that everyone can do it. What what they don't understand is what somebody might say to them very simply is saying, but why should everyone have to start in the world in which they have to strive against all those odds? The first line in my book is what captures that sentiment. I say in the first, very first line in the introduction, I had to learn the hardest way but it didn't have to be like that. That's what this book is about. And so the point being there, that the moment you start looking at my own life story and you start saying, look at what that guy did. Look at how he has succeeded. Look at what he has achieved despite the circumstances and the odds he faced. Well, no. First of all, we know that that is a simplistic analysis of what my whole life story is about for the reasons we've been discussing. But more specifically, the question you should be asking yourself is, why should I have gone through what I have gone through if this is a society that is meritocratic, that is is fair, that, that everyone has a chance to succeed? Why should I have had to face all those odds and overcome them? That is not necessarily a compliment to your society. That is precisely the opposite. That is showing you that your society is simply not one in which people should be having to face what they are facing. And that's the point of that first line of the book, is to tell politicians, this is what I had to go through. But actually, it should not have been this way. Wow, that is so powerful hearing that first line of the book having read the whole book and going back to the start. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, wow. I think we should leave on that note because that is the most powerful message. And everyone listening, honestly, you need to read this book. Thank it you. It really is just beautifully written, but obviously the message is so, so, so urgent and important as well. And um, you're just incredible. Oh, so. thank you, Emma. I'm, I mean, I know, I know you're going to end it on that, but I will add one more thing, which is about your book and, the one I told you about when we met at Cheltenham Literature about sabotage. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you why your book is also important because it's interesting, you know, your book, Sabotage, how to silence your inner critic and get out and get out of your own way. What's really fascinating about that is of course, now you've read my book about social mobility, about that journey and all the rest of it. 
but of course my life doesn't end there right i mean i i still as i joke you know i still i still have plenty of time in this lifetime to to mess it all up right and so that's one of the things that that really is on my mind all the time which is quite interesting is how do i make sure that i don't mess it up you know you find yourself sitting at the top of the food chain in some ways measured by society you find yourself at the pinnacle of your career you find yourself pretty much being told by everyone that you're successful and you've achieved everything but actually there's also this unbelievable feeling inside you that sort of says this could all go wrong be careful be careful you're only two bad decisions away from being on the curb you remember you were ho- when you were homeless it's almost like primordial you know remember what it felt to be homeless my god you better make sure you're earning enough money to pay your mortgage do you remember what it felt like to live in a hostel and and i think that is something that i really it really resonated with me and i told you before and i repeat it again you know i found your book sabotage quite triggering in that sense because it's something that i feel that okay fine i'm i'm not at risk of being homeless but actually i feel that by feeling that i might be that's what keeps me going and that's what keeps me on my toes and so that's something that perhaps i could explore in the next book and and develop some more but that's something that's often on my mind as well oh that's so so interesting and yeah i i've i mean i love that you i don't know just on on a human level this kind of imposter syndrome thing seems to just span across pretty much everyone but it did bring it home to me reading your book that your description of that sort of feeling like an imposter is it goes a lot lot deeper than someone sat on a panel in london saying that they feel like an imposter you know at their in their i don't know corner office so i think it's also we need to kind of bear that in mind that there's layers to a conversation like this and yeah it's just a hundred percent a hundred percent but thank you so much for having me though i I, i'm a big fan of yours and i hope your uh your um your amazing audience um, engage with it and, and think it's interesting. Oh, well, thank you so much. And everyone listening, go and listen to um, also the, the Radio 4 Book of the Week audio clips are amazing as well, the audio book and also the hard copy. Thanks again.